So if you do have your Bibles, we are in John 11. I encourage you to uh, follow along. Um, We're also going to have it up on the screen, and it is also in your program uh, bulletin. So the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Thessalonian church, he writes, We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. King David wrote in Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because you are with me. Now, King David also pleaded with God in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In our passage this morning, we see Mary and her friends weeping over Lazarus' death. And as Jesus watches them, he is also deeply moved and greatly troubled, as though he is observing a tragedy of epic proportions. Jesus is observing a tragedy, a tragedy that has been playing out over and over since the moment the serpent deceived Eve and sin pitched its tent in and among God's very good creation. Darkness, night, and death has filled the earth and subdued it. But as we'll see over the course of this week and next week, light, day, and life are on the move. And so whatever valley of death we find ourselves in, the teacher is here and he is calling for us. And while we might feel as though sick and sin and and all of this stuff is overtaking us, we are sick with an illness that does not lead to death and that is ultimately the good news we'll uncover this morning as we work through this passage. Now, before we jump in, I want to start with a question for you to consider as we work through the text. If you were to choose a hero of the faith to emulate, would you choose Mary or her sister Martha? All right? Would you choose Mary or her sister Martha? So I want you to just wrestle with that as we walk through our passage this morning. Like I said, if you have your Bibles, open up to John 11 to situate ourselves a bit The events that we are going to be looking at over the next two weeks, they take place in Bethany, which was a small town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Chapter 11 marks the beginning of the end. That's what we're looking at right now, the beginning of the end. And in it, we'll learn about the seventh and final sign. If you remember, we've been working through these signs of Christ. And a sign is something that, that points beyond itself, that points to some bigger and larger reality. And, and ultimately, the sign we're looking at over the next two weeks points to the resurrection of Jesus. So we'll be finishing our series on July 16th. And then we'll pick up in John again in January. So like I I mentioned, we're going through John 1 through 12, and then we're going to finish John in the new year. That's the goal, all right? So with that, let's look at the first few verses. Now, a certain man was ill, verse 1, chapter 11. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters went to him saying, Lord... He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. All right, so this is the first time we're introduced to Mary and Martha in John's gospel. But if we've been around the Bible for any length of time, we've heard about these two, and maybe some of you have even been compared to one of them. Has anyone in this room ever been called a Martha? Right? Right? That's, not, that's not a compliment, just so you know. If someone's calling you that, it's not a compliment. But we're going to get there. Hold on. Don't worry about it. You, Martha's, you will be redeemed. Um, turn with me to Luke chapter 10 really quick. I want to read to you why everyone makes fun of the Marthas. Um, in chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, verses 38 and following, and I have a slide for this. It says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. First, right right away, I'm impressed with Martha, right? Very hospitable, okay? So ease up on the Marthas. 
Um, And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. We hate her. Man, how dare she? Um, And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, portion which will not be taken away from her. So keep that in your brain, right? From this passage, we learn a little bit about the personalities of these two sisters. Martha was simply too busy all the time while Mary made space and time for relationships. Mary has chosen the good portion, according to this passage. Now, this reference to Mary anointing Jesus is something we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, but John's point in bringing it up is to make it clear that Mary and Martha are significant figures in the life of Jesus. They matter. Let's keep going. So first thing, we know that Lazarus is sick, and now we know that Lazarus is Mary and Martha's brother. So we're dealing with a family unit here. At first glance, it seems that they send for Jesus because of the relationship they all have with him, right? Like, he's like a family friend. Like, Jesus, your friend is sick. Like, you got to come see him. But we'll learn in just a few minutes, it's because they were hoping for him to do something about it. They wanted him to step into the situation. And so the point of this section is seen in Jesus' response. Lazarus's illness, which Jesus will say, does not lead to death. It's an opportunity for the Son of God to be glorified through it. In other words, Jesus sees this as an opportunity, as a chance to show people who he is. And and that's kind of what he's been doing throughout the course of his ministry. These signs that we speak of throughout the course of John's gospel, they're all for the purpose of, of demonstrating to the onlookers and ultimately to us, right? Because John's gospel was written so that we might believe. It's so that we might understand who this guy Jesus is. That's the whole goal. This is important. Jesus doesn't see this as an opportunity to receive or garner praise and worship from the people. Right? Like, that's not the point. It's, it's an opportunity for him to reveal himself. Now, I think it's important to worship God, obviously, to praise him. Um, it's right to do so. But the work he does in and through the lives of his people is motivated by his desire for people to know who he is which is a desire that is ultimately motivated by his love for us. Jesus wants us to know that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Why? So that we might believe in him and have life in him. This is what worship is ultimately about, showing the world what God is like. We talk about this every single week, right? Our goal as a people is to show the world what God is like, that, that as we live our lives, as we, as we engage with our neighbors, as we go to work, that people might look at us and that we might reflect something of the nature and character of God and his kingdom. And ultimately, that's what Jesus' ministry was all about, and it's the example he calls us to follow, right? It's that Romans 12:1 stuff. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of Christ, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable or this is your spiritual service of worship. And so the question we need to wrestle with is, do our lives reflect the nature and character of God, or are we showing the world something else? The text continues, verses 5 and following. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so, or therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, I want us to notice what's going on here. We learn of Jesus' goal in verse 4, that he sees Lazarus' illness as an opportunity for him to be glorified, or that people would catch a glimpse of who he truly is through the circumstances surrounding Lazarus's illness. And then in verse 5, we learn of Jesus's heart, that he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But his heart is not disconnected from his goal. Look what happens in verse 6, that little word, so which I think would be better read as therefore because I think therefore gives us a little bit more emphasis. It tells us that Jesus' delay in going to see his friend Lazarus is grounded in both his heart and his goal. That's why he is delaying 
going to see Lazarus. In other words, Jesus' love for Lazarus and his sisters and his desire to be revealed as the Christ are the reasons he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, at first glance, this doesn't make any sense. If I don't know the whole story, I'm looking at Jesus, I'm scratching my head. These women, women who are like family to you, they're calling for you to come because their brother, who you claim to love, is sick. Why aren't you rushing to his bedside? I'm reminded of an old episode from Seinfeld where Elaine's character is waiting to meet her boyfriend at the movie theater. While she's waiting, she's told that her boyfriend was in a car accident. And at the hospital, Elaine, clearly concerned, starts to make her way to the hospital, but then she delays to purchase a box of juji fruits from the counter. Um, do with that what you will. The point is that Jesus' decision to delay, it's motivated by his love for this family and his goal to further reveal himself. That's what's motivating this delay. The story keeps going. Verses 7 through 10, it goes like this. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Why are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And so Jesus' disciples, they're concerned that going to Judea would result in him being killed by the religious leaders. And so Jesus responds with this strange little parable about how it's easier to get around when the sun's up. But the point he's making is that the 12 hours of sunlight mark the time frame when people are expected to work, to get things done. And they're expected to work all the way through until the 12th hour, right? If, if, you, if you are a business owner and you hire people, you probably want them to work till the end of their shift, right? You don't want them to kind of like mail it in with the last like two, three hours of the day. It's like, I'm done. It's only two, three hours left in the day. No, the point is, is that there's 12 hours in a work day and, and people are expected to work the entire time. But if we dig beneath the surface, Jesus is, pre is preparing his disciples for what is to come. There's a fixed amount of time for Jesus to accomplish the will of his father. That time frame is drawing to a close, but there's still work to do. There's still work to do, and there's nothing that can stop him, not even the bloodthirsty motives of the religious leaders. At the same time, and we'll see a few of these moments as we work through this chapter, the disciples are speaking prophetically without even realizing it. This trip to Judea will, in fact, result in his death, but it won't be because he slipped up or made a mistake. Let's keep reading. Verses 11 through 16. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now what's clear from this passage is that the disciples, they really don't want to go. There's fear there. They're scared. They know that if they go to Jerusalem, that if they go to Judea, trouble awaits them. And so what does he say? Jesus, he's sleeping. That's great. Let him get some rest. He'll be back on his feet in no time, to which Jesus responds, guys, he's dead. All right, I was trying to, like, say it nicely. I was trying to, you know, be calm about it, but, like, he's dead. All right, All right. if you want me to be blunt, he's dead. But look at what then he says. I'm glad he's dead because now you're going to see why I'm here so that you may believe. And then you got Thomas. His response is great. This is the same guy who's, who's, who's basically saying at the end, like, I don't believe it's you. Like, show me, the, show me the hand. This is, again, this reminds me of a movie. This is, this is Ferris Bueller at the end of, um, or maybe at the beginning of Ferris Bueller, the principal is like, roll her old bones on down here, right? Like, that's like, she, he's like, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. No one, you guys never seen Ferris Bueller? No? Bueller? No? Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to keep doing my thing here. Don't worry about it. So Thomas, 
he, he speaks, and it's one of those, again, profoundly prophetic moments where the speaker has no idea what they're actually saying. Let us also go, that we may die with him. And this is part of what I believe Jesus is hoping for his disciples to learn. And what all of us need to embrace as Christians. Yes, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. 100%, that's what's going on. But death will not have the final word in his story. And yes, those of us who follow him, guess what? We too are going to die. But for those of us who follow him, death will not have the final word in our story either. And that is because our life is hidden with Christ in God. But this is just the reality of the world. People die. Hebrews 9 says it like this. It is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. And, and I don't say that flippantly because death is horrible. Death is one of those events that are, are a tragedy of epic proportions, which we're going to see in just a few minutes why it's a tragedy of epic proportions. And it's not something that any of us are really comfortable with. Some of us maybe more are more comfortable, but the reality is none of us want to die. We don't want to die. We like living. We like being with our families. We like being with those whom we love. And death is one of those things because none of us know what it's going to be like. It's a little, it's a little nerve-wracking. It's one of those things for me, and maybe you're not like me, when I start letting my mind go there, it starts to freak me out a bit. I'm like, but what, but what about the last breath? Like, what about when I close, like, what am I going to experience? What am I going to see? I know what the Bible says, and we all know it, right? Absence of the body in the presence of the Lord. But still, like, I think if we're honest, it freaks us out a bit if we allow ourselves to go there. I think that's fair. And maybe some of you, that's not you, and, and I beg for that faith to have one day, but it, but it does. It freaks me out. I'm being honest with you. It's some, one of those things that makes me a little kind of like, oh, I don't know. Um, but even so, it's appointed for man to die once, and then the judgment. Now check this out, right? This whole death, life, not dying thing, that's true in the eternal sense. 100%, those of us who have entrusted ourselves to King Jesus, like we're going to live eternally with God. But it's also true in the here and now. And what I mean is that death, while a very literal and future category, it's also something that we will and should experience and practice here in the present. There is a death that we are all called to die to ourselves. And that death is wrapped up in what Paul refers to as putting to death the deeds of the body. Old school saints called this the mortification of the flesh. Or simply stated, killing the sin in our lives. Killing the self-serving nature that all of us possess and replacing it with the self-giving love of Christ. That death, that death shows up in, in the obvious ways, right? Of saying no to certain things. Like we've all been taught, like we have a list, right? I bet you can write out a list of all the things you're supposed to say no to, right? We all have that list, whether, whether written down, maybe some of you wrote it down. But as one theologian puts it, we cannot live by simply embodying a vocation or a life path of no. Killing our self-serving nature also means fanning the flame of self-giving love. We can't just live saying no, 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 no. We can't. We're actually not built for that. We're built to say yes. And we see that like in the Garden of Eden, when, when God gives this gift to all of creation, to Adam and Eve, they're set, like he tells them, eat of every tree in the garden, like have your fill. Go to every tree and just say yes. Go to the sun in the morning as it's shining on your faith and just, face and just say yes. Just one tree you can't eat of, but everything else say yes to. Right? That's the problem that I think we have to wrestle with as followers of Jesus. We have a God who is generous, who wants to give us so much. And while there are certain things that he calls us to say no to, he also calls us to say yes. Check this out, what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13. And I have a slide for this. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. 
For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, right? Those are all no's. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so what, what, what Paul is getting at there is that we say no by saying yes to the things that God is offering to us. Right? When we fully embrace what God has laid out for us, the wonder and beauty of his creation, the wonder and beauty of love that he is begging for us, like, take this path, it's better we end up saying no to the things that we're supposed to say no to. So the point is, the Christian life, yes, it is a life of self-denial, but it doesn't stop there. It is also a life where we are called to embrace what Paul refers to as a still more excellent way, the way of love. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, it is saying no to making mud pies in a slum because we are holding out for a holiday at the sea. You guys tracking with where I'm going here? That's so important for us to wrap our minds around. Because we, we obsess as, as evangelicals who have been raised in, in, in streams of fundamentalism, right? For so long, we're obsessed with all the things that we have to say no to. And we neglect the beautiful things that we get to say yes to. The privilege of serving one another, the privilege of loving one another, the privilege of enjoying God's good creation. And so we end up becoming these, these clanging gongs, right, as, as Paul refers to in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13. These clashing symbols that, that are just like distracting, right? Like, like when the kids play drums after service, right? Like, like they're, they're wonderful. They're, I love it. I want to create more space for that. Um, there's something to that though, right? Like, we got to wrap our heads around this. God is not this cosmic killjoy. He's like, no, 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 no. Take, eat, it's good. Enjoy this life. Enjoy the good gifts that God has laid out before you and the ultimate good gift, giving of yourself in love so that others might enjoy and, and live. Let's keep reading. Verses 17 and following. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary, Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So Jesus arrives. The text says that Lazarus has been dead in the tomb for four days. Now, I think there's some significance to this. There's debate about it. But some later rabbinical sources state that a person's soul hovers over the body of a deceased person for the first three days, intending to re-enter. But as soon as it sees its appearance change, like when decay starts to set in, it departs. In other words, if you've been dead for more than three days, then you are no longer in the category of mostly dead. Right? You're all the way dead which makes the miracle that Jesus about, is about to perform all that much more significant. Now, John also wants to remind his readers that Jesus is only two miles away from Jerusalem, which meant that Jesus is only two miles away from his enemies. And so the tension is starting to build. Now, the fact that there were many Jews, and this is a different cat. This is not the Jewish leaders here. These are not um, combatant, you know, this is not a group of, of like enemies. This is, this is people who have come to, to be with Mary and Martha as they grieve the loss of their brother. But the fact that there were many of them there does suggest that Mary and Martha and their family were prominent in the area. Now, the next detail I want to point out is one that is very easily overlooked if we're not paying attention. Notice what it says in verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, hopefully you're still wrestling with that question. Who's the hero of the faith that we want to emulate? Right? Who is it? Right? Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha makes a statement, and it's actually an identical statement to what Mary's about to say in a few verses. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Which, which lends more credence to that idea that, if, that, that they weren't just calling for Jesus because they were hoping like, to get some comfort. They wanted him to do something. But, but remember, he, he delays for two extra days. And the reason he delays is because he loves them and he wants to show them who he is. But then after she says, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died, she then says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so, so what we have here is a pattern of lament and complaint followed by faith and trust. She absolutely is like, Lord, I really wish you were here, but I trust you. What is going on here is that Martha's faith is speaking. I want to be clear. She's not saying, I know he's dead, and you could have saved him, and I know that if you want to raise him from the dead, you can. She's not saying that. What she's saying is that even though you weren't here and didn't prevent him from dying, that doesn't change who you are, and I still believe in you. Do you see the difference? She's not expecting him to do a miracle right now. She's just saying, I trust you. I'm heartbroken, but I trust you. What John is highlighting by sharing this brief interaction with Jesus and Martha is what we are called to embody and embrace as we walk through the darkness and pain of this life. This is faith in the valley, faith. Faith when it feels as though God isn't showing up. Faith when it seems like our prayers are simply bouncing off the ceiling and smacking us across the faith, face. It's the sort of faith that we are called to cling to throughout most of our lives. The faith that is birthed when light and darkness come into conflict. And it's the faith of Martha. And it's beautiful. And then Jesus responds to this faith. Look what it says in verse 23. Your brother will rise again. And so what Jesus does is he speaks a comforting word of truth. Right? Words are only comforting if they're true. Right? That's, that's got to be the reality. And we have to, like, there's just a little sidebar for us to just embrace. Like, we can't just, just speak, like, platitudes to people and expect, no, we have to speak what's true. That's what brings comfort, what is true. But let's keep reading. Verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I mean, her response is fascinating because he doesn't actually ask, do you believe I'm the Christ? No, no, no. He, he gives like this long sort of, sort of thing, and, and, and the only thing she can deduce from that is, oh, you, you're the Christ, yeah. You're the Messiah. Martha was a faithfully Jewish woman who held to the same beliefs as the Pharisees. A belief that God would raise us up on the last day, right? She's conservative. But that's only part of what Jesus was trying to communicate. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is another one of those ego a me statements, these I am statements. I am Yahweh. I am God. I am everything you have been waiting for. And if you entrust yourself to me, if you believe in me, though you die because it's appointed that every man die and then the judgment you shall live. And that's true. And that's true for all of us. And that's true of everyone who believes in Christ. And then he asks her, do you believe this? And this is one of those moments where it almost feels as though Jesus is looking at us, those of us who are reading the book and staring us right into the eyes and saying, do you believe this? Do you believe this? What is being communicated to Martha and to all of us is the reality 
that we live in a world where pain, suffering, illness, injustice and oppression, and ultimately death is found under every rock and throughout every corner of creation. That's just true. That's just true. Whether you're reading the local news, the national news, international news, or whether you're just having conversations with people in your neighborhood, something bad is always going on. But for those of us who entrust ourselves to King Jesus, the promise is we shall live. We shall live. And as I mentioned earlier, there are eternal implications to this that are wonderful. Right? We will be with God face to face. Right, The veil will be removed and we will see him as though we are looking at one another right now. But there are so many here and now implications that God is offering to us. And the primary one is the opportunity to live out a cross-shaped existence where giving really is the more blessed way. Where we believe God when he says that the created order is one in which practicing things like self-giving love, compassion, forgiveness, and grace are how we swim with the current of creation and experience what, what the Sermon on the Mount refers to as the good life. All that to say, eternal life, resurrection life, it begins on this side of glory, and it will always look like a lamb that has been slain. Do you catch that? Resurrection life, eternal life, it begins now, and it will always look like a lamb that has been slain. It'll look like a lamb that has been slain now, And it'll look like a lamb that has been slain for all of eternity. Why? Because that is the nature of who God is, self-giving. And and we know this is true because in Revelation, the book that's about the future, which is really about the present, but it's also about the future, it says, it says in, and I can't remember exactly where it was, but, but, but John is having this conversation with one of the angels or one of the elders or someone, and he says, behold, the lion of Judah. And, 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 and John's like, whoa, lion. Let me, let me get a look at this. This is going to be wild. And then he turns and looks, and you know what he sees? He sees a lamb that has been slain, right? And that's the, that's the book about the future, You guys tracking with where I'm going here? Does this make sense? This is good news. It means that death isn't the end of the story. It means that love and compassion and giving of ourselves so that others might go free actually does bring life and actually is a blessing because it's how God created the world to be. And and the brokenness, the brokenness that entered in is, is, is the mindset that, that I got to do me and I got to get what I got to get. And God's saying, that actually doesn't lead to blessing. That actually doesn't lead to flourishing. What leads to flourishing and blessing is giving of yourself. And all of us know it because we've experienced it. It's not one of those things that we just read on a page. We actually know that it's better to give than to receive. You've all experienced it to varying degrees, when you give of yourself, you experience something that, that you just can't get when you take. That's ah, so cool. I love that. Let's keep going. How are we doing? <sighs> Whatever. Verse 28. Let's, let's keep going, right? So, so this is the vision that Jesus is laying out for us. But in the same breath... He also fully understands that life under the sun is painful. So he speaks this word of hope, but he knows that life under the sun is painful. So let's look at how he responds to the pain. Verses 28 and following, it says this. When she had said this, and and Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
Now, the first thing that stands out to me is that Martha approaches Mary in private. She doesn't put her sister on blast. This is really important. Again, this is one of those like sidebars that I think are really helpful for us. We're going to struggle, and we're going to see others struggle. Public shaming, harsh reprimands, calling people out, that's just not the picture we see in the scriptures. That's just not what we see. And I'll caveat, Jesus does publicly go after the religious leaders, but the sheep get the shepherd. The sheep get the shepherd. And there's something just so remarkably beautiful about that. Now maybe Martha remembered the care that Jesus took with her. If you remember back in Luke 10, when she was too busy to sit at his feet, and she's using that same care in how she approaches her sister. Mary's having a hard time, and her sister Martha knows that. Another thing that further reveals the nature and character of our Jesus is how he engages with Mary. He doesn't put it on her to figure it out. He's not sitting there saying, all right, Mary, you don't want to come? All right. That's cool. You stay there. Don't worry about it. I've only done this, that, and the other thing for you. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He calls for her. That's so, do you guys hear that? Like, there's something really important about that. I know it's like a little tiny thing, but, but, but Mary is, Mary's sulking. Mary's angry. Mary's overwhelmed. Mary's having doubts. And Jesus is not simply like, all right, well, when you figure out, you come to me and we'll be good. No, no, no. He goes to her. He sends for her. He calls for her. And what we saw in the last two weeks, both during Scott's sermon and two weeks ago when we looked at the parable of the good shepherd, his sheep know his voice. And so she hears that the the, the teacher is calling for her, and she rose quickly and went for him. And, And just a subtle little cool kind of tidbit, rose and rise in this context, same words used to talk about resurrection. But that's just one of those things that John likes to do to kind of, pique our interest, be like, oh, this is all about resurrection. But she's not there yet. Look at what she says in verse 32. Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Same thing Martha said, right? And then she stops. There's no, but I trust you, that follows. Mary heard the voice of her shepherd, but she's still not happy with him nor does she seem to like him very much at this point. One commentator says it like this, Jesus' delays always hurt. Our text is honest. I think there's a lot of us in this room who resonate with Mary. I absolutely understand where she's coming from. She's angry. She's sad. She's overwhelmed. She's experiencing doubt. This is the how long, O Lord, prayer that all of us have prayed in some way, shape, or form at some point in our lives. And the beautiful thing about our God is that not only does he allow our complaints, our laments, our honest cries of confusion and even doubt, he welcomes them. He welcomes them. If you hear anything this morning, please hear that. God is not put off by our doubt, our fears, our complaints, our, our longings for justice. He's not put, he welcomes them. The Psalms are filled with them. We have an entire book of lamentation named after them. And the reason why we can say with confidence that God both allows and welcomes this sort of prayer and posture is because he doesn't reprimand Mary here. In fact, and we'll see this in just a few minutes, he's going to join her. But before we get there, there's something I want us to walk away with. The point I'm trying to make, Martha's faith in the valley is beautiful. It's a faith that we all should aspire to, but it was conceived in the womb of Jesus' grace and compassion that moved toward her. 
If you remember from Luke 10, when she was busy serving instead of sitting at his feet, Jesus moved toward her and and engaged with her and didn't reprimand her, just said, hey, there's a better way. Your sister figured it out, and I think you're going to also. There's a better way. And now that same grace and compassion is moving toward Mary, who did not initially rise up to meet him, and even after responding to his call, was unwilling to lay aside her anger. The truth is that God can take whatever you throw at him, and he will redeem it, and he will redeem you. That's just true. Let's look at these last few verses, verses 33 through 37. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Now, the English doesn't really do this passage justice. Jesus is not deeply moved. He's outraged. He's outraged. And the sort of weeping that Jesus performs, it's actually very different from Mary's weeping and the Jews who were consoling Mary. Mary's weeping is the sort we experience when we lose a loved one. We've all experienced that. Jesus' weeping is the sort that accompanies a lament before some calamity. The sort of tears many of us shed on 9-11, or the tears we shed when we learn of yet another school shooting. It's the how long, O Lord, tears that looks at the suffering of this world and longs for the day when Jesus finally makes it right. Jesus is outraged and grieving because he is seeing firsthand how deep sin goes, how cataclysmic the fall really was, and how his enemy has wreaked havoc on his very good creation and the very beings who bear his image. And so the shortest verse in the Bible tells us that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. But the tears that Jesus cries, while they might look like despair, they are tears that move him to action. That's the kind of tears he's crying. I'm reminded of Bob Dylan's song, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, a song about the murder of an African-American servant in 1963 where the murderer only received a six-month sentence, and over and over, Dylan repeats the refrain, take the rag away from your face, now ain't the time for your tears. Jesus will take the rag away from his face, and he will get to work. That work will begin with the raising of Lazarus, which we'll look at next week, but it will be completed when he lays his life down on a Roman cross and takes it up three days later. The song, Bob Dylan's song, it ends in despair, where Dylan finally gives permission to to keep the rag in your face and cry. Justice is not being served. But in our story, Jesus will one day return, and what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's why death in the kingdom of God does not lead to despair. I can say death freaks me out. does. But death does not have the final word. We do not have a sickness that will terminate in death. Not the second death that Revelation 20 and 21 speak of. Redeemer, that's good news. That's really good news. That's the hope that Jesus is offering to to Martha and to Mary who is struggling. And it's the hope he's offering to us. 
I had initially planned on preaching all of chapter 11 this morning. But I decided to split them up, obviously. The reason was at first practical. I had a lot going on. I did not want to prep 57 verses. But as I was studying throughout the week, I thought it was so important for us to sit in the tension for a while. To sit in the pain and suffering of both Martha and Mary. I I don't want us to move too quickly to resurrection. Because I know for a fact that many of us in this room are still in the valley. Many of us in this room are, are, are feeling as though you are dying day by day by day. I get that. And so to tritely move past all that and just jump to resurrection, that just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel human. It doesn't feel honest. In the same breath, Resurrection, though it might be all the way out there for many of us, for most of us, if we're honest, that is the hope we cling to. That in the valley of the shadow of death, why does he not fear? Because God is with him. Because God is with him. And the truth remains, he will not leave us nor forsake us. And as Scott beautifully preached last week, he will not allow us to be plucked out of his hand. We are secure in him. And so throw it all at him. Every bit of complaint you have, every bit of anger you have, every bit of hurt you have, tell Jesus. Tell him. He's not going to be offended by it. I I promise you. I promise you. And whatever category of God you have, that that you must approach him in some overly whatever reverent sort of way. I'm I'm not saying we shouldn't revere God. I'm saying he can take whatever you have, just throw it at him. Give it to him. Yell if you feel necessary. Whatever you gotta do, give it to him. He'll take it. He'll take it. And he might, not, he might not take it from you completely, right? He might be like, I, I hear you. He might say, but you know what? You got to hold on to that for a little while. But guess what? I'm going to hold it with you. I'm going to walk with you. I have you. Don't, don't sweat. I got you. And it's going to hurt because guess what, right? The cross hurts. Nails hurt. Spears hurt. But I'm with you. I'm with you. And you know why you can trust me? Because I took the nails and the spear and the whippings before you were even a thought in your mother's mind, grandmother, whatever, right? I took it. And so I don't speak as one who doesn't get it. Right? Those commercials, he gets us. He gets us. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lamented in the garden before he walked to the cross. And here, he's outraged by sin. He's outraged by death. He hates every single bit of it. It breaks his heart to the deepest level. And so when you are angry about what's going on in this world, what's going on in your life, he's not sitting there saying, well, I wish you would speak a little more kindly. That's not God. And we know that. He didn't reprimand Mary. So whenever you're feeling as though like, oh, I can't say that to God, go read John 11. See what Mary says. Because basically what Mary says is, you weren't there. You weren't there, Jesus. That's That's what she says. Like, let's not sugarcoat it. She's upset. She's angry with him. And he takes it. He takes it. That's, that's good news. I know it doesn't feel like good news right now because I could see all of our eyes. Like, I know it doesn't feel like good news. It's good news. It's good news. I promise you it's good news. And he walks with us. My prayer this morning is for the Marys in the room, those who are sitting in their pain and their suffering. My prayer is that you would 
call out to God, that you would pile onto him every single bit of anger, frustration, and even doubt. And if you don't have any Martha in you right now, what I want you to know is that Jesus is calling for you. The teacher is here and he is calling for you. And it's not because he wants to reprimand you for your unbelief, it's because he loves you and wants you to know that he's with you. And my other prayer is for those who are sitting here this morning wondering if all of this even applies to you. Jesus has asked all of us in this room, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That he died on a Roman cross? And that he was resurrected three days later and that if you entrust yourself to him, he will forgive your sins and invite you into a life with him, a life that is eternal, a life that begins today. Do you believe that? And for those of you who are wondering who the hero of the faith is that we should be emulating, I think it's Jesus. And I also think those of you who have been called Martha's, you get a little bit of reprieve this morning. Because she does all right in this passage. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we do love you. And I know there are many in this room who are crying out, how long, oh Lord? I pray you'd meet them this morning. I pray that they would sense your presence this morning that you would bend your ear to them, that they would feel your embrace, Lord God. Lord, remove us from the the rational and the logical um, and help us to to trust that there's something spiritual, um, that there's something mysterious about being in, in community with you. And I, I pray that that would be palpable this morning, Lord God. Whoever's far away, Lord, draw them near. Call them back to yourself. God, we love you with all of our hearts. We truly do. Your grace is overwhelming and it is relentless, Lord God. I thank you that you call for us when we are distant. Be with us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.